Huh? Am I on, Sam? My son, the sound man, who turned 11 uh, on Tuesday. Yes, he is, he is a, a growing uh, young man. Um, hey, I want to I express words of appreciation to our drummer this morning, who, uh, having had all of your teeth out, how many teeth did you have taken out? Four? Four teeth out. Um, unable to eat any turkey. Came in and pounded the drums for us this morning. Thank you. We, we love you for that. Um, yeah, that's awesome. You never say to a woman, you had all your teeth taken out. What was up with that? I mean, come on. This is a rule. Um, but we are, we are growing in grace. Um, we thank God for you, Emily, and we thank you for your effort there this morning. Let's, uh, let's pray, and we, we are going to turn to God's Word. If you'd, uh, if you'd, well, we're going to read first. That's what we do. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in, in verse 15, Paul says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that your word is a light to our feet. It guides us on our path. We thank you that your word is the support of the truth in the church. We thank you that your word was expressed. It was a living word spoken by you, spoken into the world in the form of your son. The Bible says in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. But the Bible says that the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we thank you that Jesus came to be the very expression of of your word to us. Father, there are things that we find in your word. I confess in my fallenness, I find things and I read over them and at times reject them unknowingly until your love and light breaks through. And I thank you for this text that's before us, Father. I pray that for each brother and sister at this church, Father, I pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and that we might know these three truths. And as we come to know them, that our hearts would be enlightened and enlivened and energized and that we would be driven with a passion for you. Father, I pray that as we 
Look upon this truth this morning. This odd phrase, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? I pray that our hearts would be warmed and moved and fired up. Father, and that we would be a people passionate for holiness. A people passionate to share the gospel. And a people passionately encouraged by your word and that we would encourage each other with these truths. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this truth and we pray that you would speak to us now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you started your Christmas shopping before Thanksgiving, um, then perhaps you've already uh, occurred, this has already occurred to you. Um, the dilemma that I run into every year around this time is what do you get for the person who already has everything that they need? Uh, we live in America. I mean, what, what do we really, truly, honestly need? Most of us probably have houses that we live in. Uh, some kind of dwelling which we have secured with our, with our resources. Um, we have food to eat. We have clean water to drink. Uh, we have enough clothes to wear. We don't have to wear the same article of clothing every single day. You know, some of us, we, you know, I've got ties that I never even wear. I've just got tons and tons and tons of stuff. I have everything that I need. And the dilemma then becomes every year at Christmas, since I am socially required to hand out gifts to people, um, not that I don't want to give out gifts, but it's a requirement, you know, can't there be an understanding between a couple people that, hey, you don't need anything, do I have to get you something? I just wrap up an empty box and give it to you and you say, thank you, I love you, and, and we just love all one another. No, we have to get things for each other. What do you get the person who has everything. And there is no hope, by the way, in the Walmart under 10, under 20, under 25 aisle where they just box up like electronic insect repellers, you know, nose cleaner things, you know, like these, these things are not good gifts. Um, when my children say that they want something, my wife will usually say, I want a million dollars and a beach house. Um, and I cannot get that for her. I can't. Um, what do we get for the person who has everything? When I think about this text that's before us, we walk through it, um, we ask this question, what does God really want? What does God want? And if he already has everything, and he can make anything, and he has need of nothing, what can we truly supply him with? I think this is an important question to ask. What is God after? What does God want? I'll come back to that in just a moment. Let me just describe what's going on in this text again to you. Uh, I, I believe that what we could call this text is an engine of holiness. What is described in these verses here, verses 15 through 23, is a spiritual mechanism which Paul is pointing out to them. This is his prayer for them, and, and his goal is that they would know certain things 
and that, that these things would give them hope and would encourage them to grow in godliness and would encourage them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. They would walk in such a way as to live a life which indicates that they have been blessed with the salvation blessings which were described in verses 3 through 14. Verse 15, Paul says that he's heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints, and he gives thanks for them. He is excited about the fact that they are true believers. And so he remembers them, verse 16, in his prayers constantly. What is he praying for them? He's praying this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the glorious Father, might give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that God would open up the eyes of their hearts so that they would see and apprehend certain truths. Why does he pray this? Because as we know God and as we know the truth about God, we will grow to be more like him. As we understand and appreciate the things that God has done for us, as we understand and apprehend and grasp with firm, experiential reality. What we talked about last week, the hope to which he's called us. We will find ourselves naturally buoyed up in times of trouble. We will float on top of difficulty as we understand that, yes, this time, this this trouble is is, is troubling, yes, but I'm going to move through it because I know that I have a hope of eternal life. I know that I have Jesus Christ and I have righteousness from him. I know these things. And so it challenges the way that I think. That's what Paul is doing here. He's praying. And he prays for three things. He prays that they may know what is the hope to which God has called them. We talked about that last week. The second phrase is that they may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That's the second phrase. And then the third item is that they may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. I call this text the Oreo cookie. This is the way I've been thinking about it in my mind. Because the first and the last propositions are the same. The hope to which he's called us, the immeasurable greatness of his power. And they're not the same in that they're saying the same thing, but they're the same in that they are referring and applying to us. They are things which are directed usward, right? They, they, they are benefits and blessings communicated toward us, which we want, uh, which, which we should know about. We should know that God is accomplishing things for us. But the middle is this sweet, difference, something unique. I'll talk about this in just a minute. I want to draw your attention to this phrase, verse 17, the Father of glory. The Father of glory. Paul is praying that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, by the way, pointing out that, that Jesus has a God is not diminishing his deity, but affirming his true humanity. 
Okay, and that's something that many people were denying in that day, denying that Jesus was actually a human being. This was a false teaching working its way through the church. Paul was very careful to point out that Jesus was both fully man and fully God. You can, you can find this in multiple passages. But here he's pointing out that God, the Father, is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The very human, very real Jesus, who is also very divine, that, that God the Father is his Father. So don't, don't let that text trip you up or any of these texts strip you up. He's praying for something, a benefit to flow from the glorious Father. Let me describe from 2 Corinthians how this process of grace and change works here. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you understand what, what, what Paul is saying here? Do, can you grasp? You, oh, you can grasp. Let me, just, let me just spell it out here. You're smart people. You can grasp this. We all, with unveiled faces, okay, peeling back the veil which blocks us from a view of God as we look at the glory of the Lord, the perfections of God, the perfectness of God the Father, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As we behold God, we become like God. And this is a process which is wrought within us by the Spirit, right? That's what the verse says here. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What we look at we become like. What we look at, we become like. If you stare into the heart of the real sun on earth, you will go blind. It will burn your eyeballs out. But if you continually contemplate who God the Father is and what he has done for you and his perfections and his gloriousness and his kindness and his mercy and his steadfastness and his holiness and his grace and his love. The more we contemplate that, the more the Spirit will make us like that. Knowledge leads to godliness. And the result is saints. That those who are transformed from one degree of glory to another will become like God. They will be God's holy ones. So let's talk about this phrase here, okay? You know, that, that introduction aside, let's, let's jump in. Verse 18, he says that he wants us to have our, the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know, part one, what is the hope to which he's called you last week. Part two, today, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What a strange phrase, that we may know what are the riches of, the glor of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So what are they? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? I've asked this question to many, many people over the past couple weeks, and these are the answers that I hear back. I hear that the riches of his glorious inheritance are the Holy Spirit for us, eternal life given to us, the blessings of salvation in verses 3 through 14. But I want to let you know it's not any of these things. It's not any of this. It's something different. So think with me for a bit. What could it 
be. I want to work through a history, a bit of a timeline on the word inheritance. Let's start our history lesson in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 3, verses 1 through 3, where we find the idea of the inheritance for the first time. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it starts this way. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What's going on here? God is promising Abram that if Abram leaves his land, leaves his people, leaves his family, not not his wife, but leaves all of his extended family and goes to a new land, a land that God shows him, God will bless him. And God goes on to tell him, I'm going to give you and your people all of this land. Abraham's promise, the promise of the land, Abraham's inheritance for following God. Let's just rewind. Start at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. God creates mankind, male and female, and says, fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply. He created man and woman in his image and says, fill the earth with what? With my image, with little image bearers, little men and women and boys and girls running all over the place, living the way that God created them to live. Fill the world with my image. But what happened? Man and woman sinned against God. And we find in chapter 6 that the earth was filled with violence and wickedness. Genesis 6 says that every thought of man's heart was only evil all the time. What does God do? He floods the earth. Because the earth should have been full of the glory of God. And there were none who lived in a Godward way. The whole of humanity was pointed inward, selfward, selfish, instead of Godward. Let me just say something about being selfish. You don't have to be completely devoted to yourself to be selfish and to live a selfward life. You can be very devoted to other people. You can be very devoted to great works that benefit humanity. But if there's no room in your heart for God, that's a fallen mentality and a fallen lifestyle. And so God sets in place a plan to restore his original intent. To restore his intent for the world and for for a world full of his glory and of his image by reforming the human heart, by transforming the people. His goal is to restore the world and his original intent by putting away the sins of mankind, by restoring the fellowship that was original to Adam and Eve, by re implanting the Holy Spirit, the life of God living in the soul of man by transforming the heart and the mind, by challenging and changing the affections and transforming the actions into suitable, glory-producing ones. And so what he does is he chooses one man, Abram, and he makes him a promise. 
says, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to give your nation this land. And from you is going to come a blessing that's going to bless all of humanity. Every nation blessed through one nation. And so it's in the midst of this that we run into this idea of inheritance. So on Thanksgiving, or the day after Thanksgiving, we're at my, uh, my brother-in-law's house, and uh, we're celebrating my wife's birthday. She is 29 again. And um, we're, we're sitting there at the table eating her, uh, her, her perpetual birthday cake, which is a chocolate cream pie. I don't know why this became her birthday cake. It just, it is what it is. And uh, my kids are all sitting around, and my mother-in-law, whom I love dearly, is slicing out slices of chocolate cream pie. And she puts these, like, they're, they're maybe like one inch thick, you know, wide, however you want to say it on the top, slices of chocolate cream pie. And she's, she's doling them out onto their plate. And so then she cuts this slice that's like two and a half inches wide. She scoops that out and she puts it on a plate. And who does she hand it to? To me. My kids. No, no. This is not fair. Why? Because his portion, his piece, should not be bigger than all the others. But I tell them, I have, I have earned it by the power of my awesomeness. And, uh, and I am entitled to this portion. Now, we're thinking about portions and inheritance, okay? And, and, and what is due to us and, and what comes to, to Abraham who, who is serving the Lord correctly. Now, let me, in a biblical sense, okay, when, when we talk about the nation Israel, there are three portions, okay? Portion, inheritance, the people's portion, all of the people whom God brings out of Egypt and then walks for 40 years through the wilderness and then brings into the land under Joshua, the people's portion or their inheritance is the land. Okay, their portion, their inheritance is the land. Joshua 18.10 says this, Joshua cast lots for each of them in Shiloh before the Lord. There's an appropriate use of lot casting, um, because it doesn't say anything bad about having done it. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel, to each his portion. Okay, so they cut up the land, and they give the people their peace their part in Abraham's inheritance. Okay, that's the first portion. The people's portion is the land. The second portion goes to the priests, the Levites. Those are the tribe of Levi whose job was to serve God in the tabernacle and then eventually the temple. The Levites' portion has nothing to do with land. The Levites' portion is the Lord. Their inheritance is the right to serve in the tabernacle and the temple and enjoy the benefit and the blessing of continual exposure to the glory and the things of God. Numbers 18.20 And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. If a man moves into the promised land and has no stake in that land, but yet has God, does he have something? Yes, he does. Aaron is cut above all the rest. They have land. He gets to touch 
the very things of God and bask in the glory of God. There's a third portion. We have the people. We have the Levites. But there's a third person who receives an inheritance. And that's the Lord. The Lord's portion is his people. His inheritance is a people for his own possession. If this were not so clearly spelled out, I think what I understand about my own sinfulness, I would say this cannot be. But I thank God that it is. This is such good news. Exodus 19.5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. He has everything. What is God seeking? A people. A people who love him and will praise him and will honor him as God. Deuteronomy 7, 6. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured position out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So he chooses a people from among the peoples to be his treasured people. Deuteronomy 14.2 You are a people holy to the Lord your God. Same exact phrase. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then Deuteronomy 26 Verses 18 through 19. The Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you. And you are to keep all his commandments. And that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made. And that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. Something in me tells me that this is not so. There's a part of me that says, how can sinful humanity who has failed and who has behaved wretchedly and who has denied and who has has assaulted the honor and the glory and the dignity of God, how can they then be transformed into something which God treasures? Some of you probably are thinking, God's people cannot be his inheritance. Some of you are thinking, Absolutely, I know this. God's people are his inheritance. And I say, good for you. Uh, I, am, I am encouraged that many others have missed it. As I read through commentaries and look, John Calvin doesn't see it. At least he doesn't comment on it. Um, another gentleman who I admire, Mr. Hendrickson, my hero, Matthew Henry, breezes right by this and doesn't say anything. But Chuck Ryrie of the Ryrie Study Bible, Dallas Theological Seminary, good man, he sees this in the text. He says, God's inheritance is the saints. And then in parentheses it says, which we are. And I think, how could that be? How could God look at us? He possesses everything in the universe. And he looks upon the people that he's called for himself. 
And he calls it a glorious inheritance. And he counts himself rich to have it. How can this be? God has worked in his son, in his perfect son, in this way. That every rotten thing we've ever done, every way we've denied the truth, every way that he's called us to obedience and we've said no, he has placed upon his son. Punishing his son for our sins and our transgressions. Whoever trusts in the work of Jesus on that cross He gives that righteousness to the one who trusts, the righteousness of Jesus. And then what he does is he begins a process where he works in our lives. This is a process of growing sanctification, of continually being set aside and made righteous for God's work in us. What he does is he he brings into our lives things that challenge our allegiance to him. He, He brings sufferings into our lives which are designed to rob us and rid us of our sinful, selfward tendencies and to focus our affections on God so that we might say, like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I know that he's good. I know that he has a plan for me. I know that I am called to hope. I will trust. And as God makes us more and more righteous in our life, even though we are perfectly righteous because of what he's done on the cross, he is producing his own image in ourselves. So that one day when he gathers us to him, he looks at these perfectly holy people and he says, this is good. It is glorious. And he counts himself rich. Deuteronomy 32.9 says this, But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. Deuteronomy 4.20 But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are to this day. So if we, let's draw this to application, if we are his people, if his people are his portion, we need to ask this question. Are we satisfied with the earthly portion that we have in front of us? Do we look at the stuff, the cars, the houses, the geeky little black electronics that we carry around? And do we count that as our riches? Or do we count God as our portion? Is He what we're passionate about? May we cry like the psalmist does in Psalm 73, verse 26, where the psalmist says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You, my brothers and sisters, you are God's glorious portion, his glorious inheritance. You are his riches. What should his riches reflect as others look at him? Others look at them and see him mirrored in them. Are you 
devoted, delighting, passionate, excited, sold out to him. God's plan for your life is to produce a passionate, glorious people. The purpose of our trial and suffering in this life is to purify us, to like a, like a, what is that thing called that you used to get the pancake, uh, 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 a spatula, right, yeah, you know, like, like the way when the egg sticks to the pan, you know, you want it to be free, you want to get it on your plate, you just get under it with that sharp, pointy, plastic, non-scratching, Teflon surface thing, you know, the spatula, and you dig underneath it, and you, that's what suffering is in our life, to purify us and to set our affections fully on him so that we might be a people who are zealous, not for earthly riches, but for heavenly riches, which are good deeds, that we might overflow in love, abound in hope, be filled with joy, trust beyond the pain of our present circumstances. I sat at First Baptist Church in Union on Thursday morning before we ate turkey. And my friend, Belton Brevard, whose wife has suffered with very bitter cancer this past year. He stood up, and as people were giving thanks, he said, I thank God for the blessing of cancer. And I thought, if he was not the one saying it, I would think he was crazy. His marriage is rock solid because they have seen what is truly important, to love one another and honor each other as husband and wife. Business isn't important. Loving is important. Cancer pointed that out to them. Trusting God is important. Sharing with others the hope that's within them is important. Dara sits there and receives chemotherapy and shares the gospel with people around her and tells the doctors that she has a hope beyond this life and that God may choose to spare her. And it seems like he is, which is good. We've prayed for that. But she trusts him whether he heals her or not. And she wouldn't have been able to say that had this year not happened. I hear in Belton, who was there and Dara was homesick. But I hear when Dara, when Belton says with, a choke in his voice, trying to get the words out when he says, I thank God for the blessing of cancer. I hear him saying, my heart and flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Because he finds purpose in his pain and in his difficulties. He sees that God is preparing him to be a worshiper of God for all eternity and not a worshiper of pleasing circumstances, of plenty of money, of perfectly behaved kids and a life without any bruises or bumps. This man is holding on to God in all of his fullness, no matter what happens. My brothers and sisters, we are his portion, his glorious inheritance. God considers those who believe in the gospel, those who trust in him, he considers his people his riches. And so let me draw this to a close with three points of application. This is a tremendous insight for encouragement. 
tremendous insight for encouragement because we are not expendable members of his entourage. Okay? God is not like some celebrity who will throw us away or abandon us when we no longer fit his needs. Psalm 94, verse 14. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. There is one place in the Bible, in the book of Hosea, where God said, enough. I grow weary of the idolatry of the people, and I grow weary of the way they profane my sanctuary, and I'm weary of the way that they embarrass themselves. And that's in the book of Hosea. And he speaks a judgment upon the people. And he says, you are not my people. Psalm Psalms chapter 30, verse 4 and 5 say, God's anger is for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Romans 9, 25 through 26, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of of the living God. God may be angry and bring discipline into our life to purify us from some sinful habit. And if that's the situation that you're in this morning, brother or sister, let me just urge you to repent and to walk back into the favor of God because he loves you too much to not deal with sinful habits and negative tendencies. He will make us suffer until we repent but he will call us his people. Sons of the living God. We are not expendable. He will not abandon us. He who began a good work in you, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, will be faithful to bring it to completion. He will not throw us away ever. God's discipline is emphasis, is, 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 is an indication of a broken fellowship not a broken relationship. So don't hear that wrong, what I just said there. We are not expendable, so be encouraged. Second, this is a tremendous impetus for our evangelism because when we share the gospel, we are filling the chests of God with his precious children. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy people, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why did God save us? So that we could proclaim his glory. You know, it's not all pointing out to people how sinful they are when we share the gospel. A lot of it is pointing out how wonderful God is and how faithful he is, and how he meets us at the point of our need, and how he never fails, and he never lies, and he never abandons us. And he's always good, even in the midst of our worst suffering. Why does he call us a people for his own possession? So that we may proclaim his excellencies. This should spur us on to share the gospel, brothers and sisters. Finally, this is a tremendous motive for holiness. We ought to be becoming now, today, who we are going to be for all eternity. 
Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's the holiness theme right there. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now listen. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. For all eternity. We will spend a perfect eternity doing perfect things as perfected people for a perfect God. God is passionate that we live that way now. You can't live perfectly. You're going to sin. I just let you off the hook right there. But when we wake up in the morning, we ought to have that Windows XP moment. Right? You guys remember Windows XP? It was before their two, two releases before their last bad software. Windows XP. I own a PC. I don't own a Mac. Well, I do own kind of Macs. Anyway. Um, the theme for Windows XP is what are we going to do today? Turn on your computer. What are we going to do today? I'm going to write emails. I'm going to write a Word document. I'm going to fill out a spreadsheet. That's a small view. When we wake up in the morning, God has redeemed us to be people who are zealous for good works, passionate for holiness. God what are you going to do through me today? What are we going to do? Go out and walk in the good deeds that Ephesians says he has placed before you. Is your desire to enter into relationship with God this morning? He desires for you to be a person of his own possession. Receive his grace. Believe in the cross. Trust in salvation. Is he your portion? Because you are his. So be encouraged this morning. Is your joy in sharing the gospel? God is precious. And he holds you as precious. And his desire is for you to speak precious words of life to people created in his image who need that image to be restored so that they too can be precious people created in his image for his glory. And is it your desire and joy to be holy? God is creating you for this. Pursue your Father who loves you and is creating you for holiness and for good works. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this word from your word. How could it be that you look upon people who have failed you in so many ways, who are fallen and who have messed up and who have denied you and forsaken you. And yet, when you redeem them and place your spirit in and, and begin to lead them to walk in good works, as you create them into your image, you look upon them and say, 
I am rich. I can say that that is nothing short of amazing to me, Father. I pray that as we encounter sin and temptation in the coming weeks, months, and years, that this thought that I am His precious possession would spur us on to holiness. Father, may it give us hope in dark corners. May it encourage us to step beyond the uncomfortable moment and to speak the truth of the gospel for your glory. Father, you make everything glorious. And that must mean that you are making your people glorious too. We thank you for that truth. And we pray that it would drive us. May we be passionate for you as you are passionate for us. We thank you. We love you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.